0: Well, we're going to continue in our look at the Romans chapter 14 and after a pretty good introduction to what Paul is accomplishing here, I think we don't need to go over much of that and we can get right into the text where we left off last, last time. This whole section, beginning in chapter 14, verse 1 through the middle of chapter 15, I would describe as Paul dealing probably with an issue that probably was the only one that we're aware of, at least from the book of Romans, at the church the church is in Rome, where Paul was uh, sending this letter off. And the letter obviously is written to a variety of churches. Many of them we'll see in the conclusion were home churches. So probably something the size of what we have here in this home here small groups. There might have been some larger, but we don't have any numbers given to us. So several churches. And at that time, uh, I don't remember the number of people in the city of Rome, but I think it was over a million. Do you remember any of the numbers of Rome, first century Rome? So it was a considerable metropolitan area and obviously the center of the empire. And there were believers, many of them returning from the day of Pentecost And a lot of them were Jewish. So there is a lot of Jewish elements in the book of Romans. In fact, a whole section that deals with a particular issue dealing with Jewish believers. The main portion, you've seen this slide several times, provision of God's righteousness. Just a summary of the book of Romans. The main division of the book, God providing righteousness, his very own righteousness to people that lack righteousness. Then he deals with that special issue. What about Israel? I thought Israel was God's chosen people. I thought they were the ones that God was going to use. God made covenants. God made promises. God is going to use them. They have a future. Well, uh, what's the deal with them? If this new entity of Gentiles coming in, the hated Gentiles, Where does Jews and the nation of Israel fit in? So he deals with the vindication of God's righteousness, explaining that Israel is set aside only temporarily for a period of time. We know it as a church age. During a church age, God is doing a special work amongst Jew and Gentile. So he's explaining why Israel is set aside, but uh, it's not a permanent setting aside. God, in fact, will save all of Israel is what Chapter 11 tells us. So the righteousness of God is vindicated in that God is not going back on promises. He's not breaking covenants. He's not forgetting what he has promised to the nation of Israel, but in fact will fulfill it. But he has a bigger plan that is being unfolded in this new era after the Messiah had arrived the first time. And we're getting close to the end of the book of Romans where. He's laid out some basic theology, primarily soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. But there's lots of other doctrines related to it. Doctrine of sin, doctrine of man, doctrine of sanctification. All of these doctrines, he's laid them out in these first 11 chapters, including 9 through 11, the doctrine of the nation of Israel. You could consider that a doctrine in itself. In fact, Arnold Fuchtenbaum wrote a whole theology on uh, basically Israelogy, calling it Israelogy, making it a theology in itself. So he's dealing with theology in the two subdivisions, and now he's applying, how does this look as it's worked out in everyday life? So that's application of this righteousness, God's righteousness, and that's 12.1 through 13. And he starts in chapter 12, first two verses, what it looks like in relationship to God. We're a living sacrifice, so we yield ourselves totally to him, unreservedly, using imagery from the Old Testament, Jewish imagery. And how does it relate? So application of God's righteousness in relationship to God, in relationship to the church, in relationship to society. And we're in the last subdivision. I've titled it... uh, Christian liberty, so he's dealing with that issue. And in outline form, very quickly, we're dealing with chapter 14, where we're applying Christian liberty, verses 1 through 12, that's the portion we're in right now, the reception of differing convictions, and I gave you a long introduction, we come from different backgrounds, some very legalistic, some not so legalistic, denominational backgrounds. You get these people together in the first century, the backgrounds were Jewish, Gentile, some cases Samaritans even. You bring all these together and people develop different ideas concerning what is right and wrong, different convictions. Some of that is influenced by these backgrounds. And as a result, there can be conflicts in the church because one group, particularly in these areas that are not clear cut, clear, clearly defined in scripture and even though in some cases there are, there is some clarity, but because of the background, uh, people need to grow to realize the freedom that they have in Christ. In other words, now we are free in Christ, but we carry baggage around. And I've used, I think, the illustration in our culture, one of the issues is like baptism. Some people baptize in different ways. Well, I came from a Baptist church, and if you don't dunk, then it's not legitimate. That's right. It's not real. Well, I'm Methodist. I was baptized, you know, and I was sprinkled. And one looks down on the other and they have an argument. That sort. That's the kind of the issue he's dealing with. And there's lots of them in our culture and or a few of them in the first century. Paul had to deal with that to preserve the unity of the body in uh, the church, particularly at Rome. But because it's inspired, it would have application broader and go beyond that. So we saw... First of all, the reception of these differing convictions, receiving of the believer. In other words, we accept them where they're at, give them space to grow, essentially. Then the second part, uh, verse 2 through 11, he's going to give reasons why we need to accept one another in these differing areas that uh, in some cases are not so clear for everybody. And some of them may be clearer than others. And you'll notice that Paul doesn't say, uh, he doesn't, well, he kind of hints at taking a side. He takes the side of the strong, but he wants the strong to accept the weak because they need to grow to learn what Christian freedom is all about. So we saw it, verses 2 through 3. First reason is God has accepted them. And if God has accepted them by saving them, then who are we to reject them? In fact, he died while they were yet sinners, chapter 5. So that's 2 and 3. And then verse 4, God sustains them no matter where they're at. God is the one that's going to sustain them, and he's going to raise them up. So we need to be patient and let him work. And we left off, I think, in the fifth one, and that's the part that we'll start up this time. Another reason is God is sovereign. And God is going to work sovereignly. He is Lord. Let him exercise his sovereignty and his lordship over those that you may have differing ideas with. So verse 5, just a quick review. This is the last verse we looked at last time. And he dealt with foods. So in the first century, the, the issue dealt in part with differing ideas concerning foods. And particularly Jews But I tried to show that Gentiles had a problem also with certain foods. If they came from a pagan background where foods were offered to idols, they had a reservation if they were not sure where these foods were coming from. And they didn't want to take a chance, and they felt that if they ate, they might be defiled. That's why we spent a little time in 1 Corinthians 8, because it deals more with the Gentile situation. But at Rome, there was a combination of the two. And then in verse 5, they also had a problem with days. There were some that observed different days. This was also a Jewish problem, particularly in that they emphasized particularly the Sabbath, but there were other days as well, feast days. And Gentiles had a similar problem in a different way. They had this pagan worship that they had special days. And in some cases, they viewed some days as lucky days even, and some as not so lucky but they kind of honored and they gave special observance to certain days. So they came from that background and didn't realize that in Christ, God has changed everything. And in fact, Jesus has made all foods clean. And we looked at a couple of passages that relate to that. And in terms of days, now we don't observe. We're not under the Mosaic Covenant, which specifies the observance of the Sabbath. Jesus fulfilled all of the issues of days and other issues relating to the Mosaic Covenant, the Mosaic Law, and now we are in a different dispensation, you might say, or a different era. We're in a different age. We're in the church age where there are no special days. I, I made the point just to remind you last week, Sunday is not the Christian Sabbath. This is a division in our culture today. There are some that say, well, you need to observe Sunday just as the Jews observe Saturday, and they had the same ideas relating to it. But I tried to make the point that the first day of the week in that culture was a work day. So everybody worked. You couldn't get around it. That was not a violation of the Sabbath any more than it would be today. And most of the slaves would have to do a whole day's work before they had a worship time. And they would worship in the evening. And they worshiped on the first day because that's when Christ rose from the dead. It wasn't a change in terms of a new requirement. What it was was a commemoration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And now we don't have to observe days, but we want to remember and to reflect on the resurrection of Christ because that's the focus of our, our belief. We don't do it in a legalistic way and we choose to do it, but we we work because <laughs> it's the first day of the week. So one person regards one day above another, another regards every day of life. So that's the division. So there's one group that says you, you better or not work on Sundays. This is the new new Sabbath. But the Jews would still also observe the Sabbath because they felt like they were still under the law, because they're Jewish. But Christ has set them free, and they were not at a point in their Christian walk to see otherwise. So another one would say, no, we're, we're free in Christ. We're not bound by all that legalism. So the issue is judging one regards one day another, and another regards every day alike. In the English translation of the New American Standard, and some of the other versions might give a different word there, I pointed out that those two words, regards, is the same word we've already seen in the prior verses where it talks about judging. And this is an example of how words, words are flexible and they're used, the same word can be used in a slightly different way in a different context. We do this. This is the way language works. The Greek language works the same way. The Hebrew language works the same way. And the translators try to give you those nuances when they change the wording. It would be just as legitimate to translate this. One person judges one day above another. Another person judges every day alike. Because we use the word judgment or judging in a sense of concluding and not always in that legal sense in terms of condemning or judging. So I put together this little slide to kind of remind you. In verse 1, we have a different word, diacresis, to pass judgment. So in this passage, we have a few different words here. 3 through 4, we have the word to judge, and it's translated that way. In other words, judging one another. In other words, condemning them for their differences. And then in the passage we're looking at here, the word there is krino, the Greek word. Verse 5 it's translated regard, but it's the identical same same word, krino. It's used two times. Just to right. mainly illustrate, when you come to, across somebody making the comment. Uh, yes,
1: um, just to reinforce that, um, just today I had to, or I was translating Lesson 87, and the word is um, logizomai. Um,
0: logizomai? Consider,
1: yeah, consider a reason. Right. And... You gave us four verses uh, with that word in Greek, yes. in English, but in Spanish, all four of them were different. One was to esteem something. Not one was to judge. In the Spanish another version. was "I have for certain." That's an idiom. Right. And then another one, the fourth one, was thinking. So all those different words for that same uh, word logizomite
0: yeah, depending on the context. <laughs> This is how language works. This is how English works. This is how Greek works. This is how Hebrew works. And we say this because sometimes people say that word and and make, every time it occurs, they try to make it the same thing. And that's a mistake in trying to understand the Bible. Right. And a lot of believers don't have that. Most of you are, we do this all the time. And by the way, that was from Mexico. We have people from Mexico, Australia. We got, no, not wow, we've got a Ukrainian girl, <laughs> Lana, and we have the Pertzers from Guatemala. So back to the study here. So the word there, to <laughs> regard, has this more idea not of judging something in a courtroom-type situation or even in a condemning way that we sometimes do, but to make a decision. In other words, a determination, you might say. So the word regard, the American Standard, translate that way. This is how I consider this day or regard this day or come to the conclusion concerning that day. And we won't look these up, but this was just to emphasize that this was an issue, not just at Rome, but there was some issues at Colossae. Paul addresses a similar issue. He's a little bit harder on the Galatians, because they were associating salvation with some of these issues and that was offensive to Paul so he's a little bit harder on the Galatians and the the Colossians he's a little more gentle with the Romans not so uh well, he had, he hadn't been, he had been to Galatia right yeah. on on the first trip yes when Galatians 3:1 you know yeah, Jeff's pointing out that Paul had been to these other places, and Maddie wants to... Stay
1: it, please.
0: Yeah, I think that, that, yeah, that probably had a little bit of an impact. Right, right. What Maddie's, was Maddie saying? Maddie's pointing out that uh, Paul did not have the same authority as, not, as a non-founder of the Roman church that he had in, for example, Colossae and uh, Galatia. And that's probably uh, part of the explanation. So one person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced. This is the whole area of convictions. In other words, allowing the Holy Spirit by interacting with God's word to help us to come to convictions in these areas, and particularly in the areas of these issues that deal with Christian freedom. And what we need to understand and to study is the freedom that we have in Christ. So each person must be fully convinced. And if you're not quite there, but you have this conviction, then the strong, the way he defines them here, are to give the so-called weak room to grow. And the weak should not say, well, I can't eat that meat, or I can't, you know, I have to observe that day. They should not judge those that are free and uh, do not do the same thing in those areas. So each person must fully be fully convinced in his own mind. So Paul gives a lot of leeway here. We've looked at a lot of these words. The last one here, fully convinced, is another word. We've seen some words that are related to that. If we had more time, we'd look a couple of parallel passages, Romans 4.21 and Colossians 4. (laughs) 12. So those of you that are taking notes, you might jot them down. You can look them up later. Verse 6, he who observes the day. Now he's going to expand upon this. And he's going to give rational reasons or rationale for why we should not hold others to our own convictions and let them have the freedom that God has freed them. Or try to force those that don't have those freedoms to conform to our viewpoint he who observes so he's going to expand he who observes the day observes it for the lord in other words these are believers that are sincerely trying to please the lord so they're doing it because they're trying to honor and they're trying to obey him and because they're not free yet they feel like they have to observe the sabbath for example concerning the days or feast days and he who eats does for the Lord. So the one that is free to eat, and notice he brings the two two issues together in the same verse here. He just talked about observing days, and now he goes back to the earlier verses in chapter 14, the issue of eating, eating particularly meats. Remember, one group says, I'm going to just abstain from all meats, just eat vegetables, I'm going to be safe. So one observes the day, he who observes the day observes it for the Lord. In other words, he is sincere and he's wanting to please the Lord. And the one who eats, he does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And, and what Paul is basically saying, there's some sincerity here. There's some uh, reality here. It's a matter of people needing to have space to grow. And if they're giving thanks, they're not going to give thanks if they think they're doing the wrong thing. In other words, if someone is free to eat meat that is even uh, offered to idols, like we saw in chapter 1 Corinthians 8... And he's doing it in sincerity, and he give, he's giving thanks, praising the Lord. Thank you for this meat that you made available to me. Then he who eats not, for the Lord does not eat. In other words, giving people room to grow. So one does not eat, one eats. They're both doing it in sincerity, trying to please the Lord, honor the Lord, and he gives thanks as well. So both of them give thanks. Both of them are sincere. Both of them want to please the Lord. And the idea they're giving thanks, that indicates sincerity. Now he's assuming, obviously, that you're not faking the thanksgiving here. (laughs) One thing to to notice, one thing that I wanted to point out, because we're going to see a recurring theme in this chapter. This is kind of a sub idea here. But it kind of sticks out as we work our way through. So let's start with the very first verse here. In fact, there's some other ones that uh, we could have looked at. But notice the interchange here, Lord, Lord, God, Lord, God. Now, we've already seen in this passage that he's talking about a relationship with Jesus Christ. And we're going to see kind of an interplay with a, a reference to Jesus And in the same, in this case, same sentence, a reference to God, he's not making distinctions here. I think what he's doing is he's he's just out of just kind of a normal understanding of the nature of Christ. When you speak of Christ, you can speak of him as Lord. And I think he's referring to Christ here. And in the same sentence, you can refer to him as God because of the deity of Christ. I'm going to kind of show you throughout. There's several little points. This chapter is full of this. There are several little notes here that if you look at the details, essentially what Paul is saying, he sees Jesus as God. In other words, it supports the doctrine of the deity of Christ. So verse 6 is kind of a vivid example I think he's referring to the Lord, giving thanks to the Lord, you know, Lord, thank you. And we're thinking in terms of Jesus, giving thanks to God. Okay, so we start off even in verse three, we have the mention of God in the same context. Theos, verse four, we have kurios, like we have in verse six, Lord. And then now in verse six, we have Lord three times and God two times, kind of intermixed. And notice he's going to go back and forth, back and forth. So he sees that Jesus is fully God, supporting. It's not a strong statement. There are stronger statements in Scripture supporting the deity of Christ. But this just kind of goes along and gives added little detail concerning the deity of Christ. And we're going to see this all the way even into verse 12. There's going to be several examples. I'm going to fill up the slide with that. So back uh, kind of the main thought here in verse seven and eight for not one of us lives for himself getting back to individual believers you know they eat and trying to please the lord giving thanks for the, the food that god has presented and by the way this is one of the first passages in all scripture that uh, at least alludes to the early church offering grace i guess you'd call it, or thankfulness before a meal, even though a meal is not specified specifically, but this is one of the passages where the tradition gets started, where the church gave thanks for uh, before a meal. And we do this even to this day. For not one of us lives for himself. In other words, we're a body, we're, we're a unit, and uh, we're not individually related to Jesus Christ. We are corporately related. Certainly we have an individual relationship, but that individuality and that individual freedom should be in consideration of the broader relationship of brothers and sisters together. For not one of us lives to himself. In other words, we we have a relationship with one another, and underlying that is we have to have a, a respect for where we're at with one another. Not one dies for himself, kind of the life and death here, kind of the totality of who we are. For if we live, we live for the Lord. This is what believers want to do. We have a kind of a summary of uh, the Christian walk and our desire, uh, our deepest yearning is to live for the Lord. Now we have things that sidetrack us and the old nature that trips us up but at the heart of every believer, and he's dealing with the weak and the strong here, we live for the Lord, or if we die, in other words, the end of our life, uh, we die for the Lord. So he's kind of giving this the Christian walk, we're related to one another, so therefore he comes to a conclusion, therefore whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. In other words, all of life, we are the Lord's. we belong to him, And belonging to him, there's this tie to one another. Uh, There's a body of Christ, as the Bible indicates. And by the way, in verse 8, I didn't highlight it, but we have Lord a couple of times again, so he's going back and forth. Maddie?
1: So it seems like Paul is back to not only connected to the connection, is that we all um, knitting the same in God. Yes. For his sake,
0: we do need. Right. And that's kind of the underlying theme is this lordship of Jesus Christ. Not only the word that he describes him with as Lord, kurias, but he's going to make some stronger statements as we go further. So in verse 8, we have Lord three times. So we already had it, what, one, seven times. And then verse 9, for, to this end, notice Christ. <laughs> uh, he's talking about Christ. For this end, Christ died and lived again. We have one of the reasons that Christ came and died and was raised. Now, this isn't the totality of the reason. If you study the rest of Scripture and you study not only Paul, but the Gospels and other writers, there are several purposes that you can can come up with a whole list of reasons that Christ came and died and was raised. Uh, Here we have an interesting one in that he died to be Lord, essentially, or to have sovereignty over the body, sovereignty over all of us. Kind of broadly, he came certainly to make provision for sin that we may have opportunity to have a relationship with the Lord. That's probably one of the main purposes. Uh, There's other passages that indicate that he came to satisfy all of the legal demands of the father, all of the things that the father requires in order to have a relationship with sinners, sinful man. So from the human perspective, he died for the purpose of making provision for sinners, but he also died to satisfy, uh, we call that propitiation, He became the propitiation for sin. In other words, he satisfied all that God required legally and judicially. And uh, he did that by dying on the cross. So he died on the cross to make provision for man and also for God. So two very broad areas for the, the reason that Christ came and died. And here we have a third one. And like I said, there's others as well. For to this end, Christ died again, and the reason that he might be Lord, both of the dead and the living. By virtue of resurrection, he now is is Lord over all, dead and living. In other words, sovereign over all. Remember, when he came, he emptied himself, Philippians chapter 2, not diminishing his deity or not emptying himself of the perfections of God, but emptying himself of the use or the access of the full deity, the full, the the what? All of his privileges, you could say. Bill's commenting. Yep. And in that sovereignty, he now is Lord. So he is sovereign. And again, we have Lord, Kurias. So for the reason that he gives here is because Jesus is Lord. We are not Lord over one another. We should not try to replace Jesus and manage somebody else's Christian walk. Now, we need to nurture and encourage and teach and minister to people, but we can't manage them as lords, as sovereign. There's one Lord, and that was even one of the reasons why he even came. And he gives a fourth reason, and we won't have time to get into all of it, but let me just get us started, and then we'll continue looking at Another reason is because of the judgment seat of Christ. So Paul, in this passage, is giving four reasons why we need to accept one another, as he points out in verse 1. God has accepted them and brought them into the family and saved them, so for the purpose of salvation. Secondly, God is the one that's going to sustain them, and they are going to stand or fall in that passage in verse 4 on the basis of God sustaining them, and he will sustain them. You know, we don't have the power to do it, so let the Lord sustain them. We just looked at uh, God is also, he is the Lord. He is the sovereign. We are not the master. We're not the sovereign. And there's a fourth reason, the judgment seat of Christ. And I don't know, I think most of you are pretty familiar with it, but for the sake of any that may not be as familiar... And uh, one of the things I'm doing also, as you all know, I'm trying to be as detailed and as complete as possible, well, not as possible, but as thorough in order to put it on the website so that others that are not as grounded as you guys are will have access to some very uh, detailed, basic stuff. And verse 10, so he's going to give us a fourth reason, but you... And by the way, he's very direct here. It's emphatic. The you, not only in the English, but in the Greek text, it's emphatic. But you, why do you, and there's the word again, judge. And you can probably guess, it's what? Krino. Mm -hmm. But you, why do you judge your brother? And notice, again, he's kind of bringing this intimate idea. He's used it before. There's this family relationship. We are related as brothers. You might say sisters, but this intimate relationship. Uh, Why do you judge your brother? Or again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? He raised that earlier, and he's kind of reiterating it to kind of emphasize it in this context of this fourth reason why we are to accept one another.
1: Two, he's using, judge your brother, that's what we can do, strong,
0: down on them. You're remembering our prior study, exactly. And again, he uses brother again for both of them. Yeah, yeah, very good, very good. For And here's, here's kind of the, the underlying reason for, in other words, this is the reason, we're not to do this, we're going to be evaluated. Uh, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. And in the Greek text, judgment seat is one word, and I don't want to say it's mistranslated, but I think people misunderstand the whole, whole idea of what the judgment seat is all about. So we need to discuss that a little bit. I think most of you are aware of this, but like I said, for people that may not be as aware. Let's let's spend a few minutes introducing this idea of the judgment seat. You all know the word, right? What is it? What's the Greek? Bema. Bema. Yeah. So you're familiar with it. In fact, maybe I'll just ask you to (laughs) relate what the judgment seat is. But just to kind of introduce it, we've talked a little bit in different contexts, Bible prophecy, and the end of the age and most of you are familiar with the basics of the premillennial viewpoint where if we're at a point in time if, if you can represent the future on a timeline here and the next major event in terms of believers is a an event that we call the rapture from 1st uh, Thessalonians chapter 4 And I put a little gap between the rapture and the beginning of a very, very specific seven-year period of time. It is precise. It's got an Old Testament precision to it. And the book of Revelation adds to that precision of a seven-year period of time. And it's a time, I believe, that is primarily for the nation of Israel. This is where... Romans 11 begins to unfold in terms of God fulfilling that future plan for the nation of Israel. It's a terrible time, that's why it's called tribulation. The Bible divides it into two parts, three and a half years of each. And then the return of the Lord. This is the second coming in two phases. A coming for the church, that's why we have an arrow coming down, the Lord returns We meet him in the clouds, and we are with him. This is the church. There's a seven-year period that is initiated not by the rapture, but another event. I won't get into the detail there. And there's a precise seven-year period, and Christ returns and establishes the kingdom. This is what the Jews expected in the first century, but because the nation of Israel rejected their Messiah, that kingdom was postponed. And I, I just mentioned all of that in order to explain i'd like to kind of give you a little detail beyond just the bema and we don't have time to complete that today but we'll get into more detail next week but uh we want to put it on a timeline now the bible is not specific doesn't give us a time frame in fact nothing in church history in the bible has a time frame i like to stress when i teach eschatology that eschatology is jewish And Jewish eschatology is not only very detailed, but Jewish eschatology has a very precise and specific time frame. This seven-year period is part of that. It makes more sense, and most of the scholars that you are familiar with and most of the people that we would uh, trust in terms of Bible prophecy would uh, put the next major event for the church after the rapture as the bema. In other words, we go to be with the Lord. And this judgment seat is where we will appear. So the question is, and I'm going to ask you all, in fact, the Zoom people, if you guys want to answer it, you can answer it as well. Do Christians face judgment? Okay, we got one answer. They're a consenting viewpoint. Okay, we have kind of a questioning answer. One uh, emphatic no and Maddie is it depends on how you define judgment alright mm-hmm. any any other consenting viewpoints I'm with Maddie pardon me I'm with Maddie you're with Maddie okay uh,
1: my understanding <laughs> is that we're judged on the basis of how we've lived the Christian life
0: okay and Sharon, that would be Sharon is, Sharon is saying then, we are judged based on the the way we live the Christian life. So she's she's saying we are judged.
1: So and then we have, we um, have a negative, we have an in between, end, and we and have
0: I'll a positive. It, Sharon, go ahead.
1: Uh, we're not judged at the great white white throne because of Christ.
0: Okay, we're talking about a different judgment. So let's talk about Christians and judgment. All right, very good. Well, first of all, Christians. Have experienced a judgment that took place in the in the past on the cross, where Jesus paid in full all the penalty for sin. So Denise is correct in that. Uh, so Christians will not ever face judgment for sin. And now I'm getting into defining it for Maddie here. We will never face judgment for sin because Jesus paid in full everything. It was required for God's legal standards to be fulfilled. So we will not face judgment. And I think the Bible is very clear on that. There's lots of passages, a clear one, John five twenty four. These is the words of Jesus himself. I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be crino. Very good, Betty. Will not experience crino, will not be judged or be condemned, used in its extreme sense. He has crossed over from death to life. Pretty emphatic. There's a lot of other statements very similar to that. So Denise is correct in that Christians will not face judgment in relationship to any sin. And that, that includes all past sins before a person believed in the Lord Jesus Christ all the sins that we will experience during the Christian life, and then we will stop doing that after we go to be with the Lord. So Denise is to be commended. Yay, Denise. (laughs) But there is, and we would not say that it's judgment, but there is such a thing, and we have passages like Hebrews chapter 12 and other passages. God does intervene. Like a father, in fact, that's the analogy of the passage, God intervenes like a father to correct us as his children, and we call that discipline. It can be harsh, it can be severe, but it's not judgment for sin, it is correction, just like a father, a good father, will correct a child in order to keep that child from damaging or destroying himself. So discipline is an important part of a present, ongoing, experience that we experience and there's a future evaluation we might say and when we describe it as a judgment seat using the word judgment it almost conveys an idea contrary to the idea that denise is talking about so sometimes we'll describe it as the bema to try to get away from the idea of judgment and in reality, what it is, it's a future granting. You might say of rewards or loss. That's the essence of the bema. Now there is a negative aspect, and we'll look at a passage. We won't have time today, but we'll look at a passage relating to that next week, where it specifically says concerning. Maddie's looking it up right away. Notes, 3D, she knows. three right? Yep. First yeah. Corinthians three. <laughs> and there's others, but that's the central one, where. We will be evaluated, you might say, and how we live today determines this evaluation. And I believe, I'm kind of jumping ahead here, and this is a good place to stop, and we'll talk a little bit more next time. But I believe that the rewards and or loss will be experienced during that, that's why I showed that slide with the timeline, will be experienced during that thousand-year millennial kingdom. (sighs) So there will be a future, we could call it an evaluation or a review of how we live the Christian life, and there is the potential to live in disobedience and to live uh, apart from Christ as a believer, and I I think the Bible is clear, we don't lose salvation, but we do lose rewards. You might view this kind of like maybe an illustration some people use is... This is like a bonus. Uh, you go to work, you earn a salary, and as you work the hours, you accumulate a certain amount of, I don't want to say reward, uh, salary I guess. And then the, at the end of the year, the, the boss gives you an additional because you were a good, very good employee, wants to motivate you, and he gives you more, he gives you a bonus. Yeah. That, that analogy breaks down, but and Jeff's no, probably going to point I out where it breaks down. Well, number one, I've always perceived this what, what we're going to be judged on is obedience. Yes. Uh, and But borrowing from 1 Corinthians 3, where we build upon uh, the foundation of gold and silver wood hands double, deeply burned up, and I immediately went, wait a minute, our earlier discussion, the individual's the soils, third one, choked by weeds, I'm wondering if that has a reflection on I that. think so. I yeah. think so. Yeah, this was a discussion before most of you came. <laughs> that, was, that, that was the theology before. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just to give you a visual, what Paul is using is imagery that was very common in the first century. In all, Yes, you were there. You were there. Yeah, you were there. In Corinth, and there's other archaeological places where you find similar abema, and next time I'll explain what abema meant to the uh, first century people, and this will help us to better understand what Paul is getting at when he talks about the bema or the judgment seat, the way it's translated in a few places in the New Testament, what's behind all of that. So I'll leave you with that image. Uh, yeah, there's some imagery that we'll develop next time relating to the bema but there was a real bema that had some significance at corinth somewhat in the center of the whole city and those that went to israel or israel and greece i'll have to show the photograph of all of you in all your in all your grubbies well denise was absolutely correct in that we will not face any judgment for sin And who was it? Bill was also correct. Who's the one that said that we will, in fact, be evaluated? And you could consider that a judgment in that our life as believers will be evaluated. And we're going to look at several passages that indicate that. And we have the potential of receiving future reward How we live now will determine our place in the millennial kingdom in terms of reward, but there's also the potential of losing perhaps a position or uh, opportunities. So how we live now is very, very important. Well, today we're supposed to pray for the Pertzers, and those of you on the Zoom, uh, feel free to pray, jump in. And those that are here... Might pray for Linda Lou and our plans, and we can get a good group. It's kind of short notice, but spread the word. Uh, not only Grace, but uh, those of you that represent other churches, if you might want to invite some people. Well, just pray as you feel led. Father
1: God, I, I lift up uh, the Iwana class that, uh, oh, that uh, Connie's at now. Mm-hmm. I just pray that the workers will be led by the Holy Spirit to be clear in their teaching and uh, that it will plant seeds in these children's minds and hearts to come to know that uh, the free gift of salvation is by grace alone through faith. And I also lift up the Vacation Bible School workers. I pray that they'll all be healthy and be able to attend and uh, that these students, even more will come than they expected in all these different churches, and that many children uh, will be convinced of uh, the truth of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name I pray.
0: Amen.